sermon from John chapter 8. I thought it's nice to do one from the New Testament. And uh, it's, uh, it fits very well in the context of uh, John 7. We're not going to read all John 7, just the last verse, all the way through 8 verse 12. So John 7, 53 to 8 verse 12. So Jesus is at the Feast of the Tabernacles. We'll find out what that is in a moment. And um, the feast is now over. Seven days. Seven day feast is now over. And we're reading verse 53. And everyone went to his own house. However, if you look at verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple. All the people came to him. Notice it's after the feast. They're still there. They love him. He sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they may have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. And so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Stop for a moment. What do you suppose he wrote on the ground? It doesn't say. Okay. But there's some interesting connections there. And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Wow. Think about how cruel these religious teachers are. They exploit or they use a woman in her very vulnerable situation and they use her in order to undermine Jesus. In order to find fault in Jesus. Sometimes that easily happens. We like to use people for our own ends with a purpose and with a goal which is not always noble. And you definitely see that here. But they want to find fault with him. And notice here, if Jesus says to his opponents, his opponents, yes, stone this woman, then where is his mercy? <laughs> is there no mercy? But if Jesus says, no, don't stone her, then where is his justice? Justice or mercy? 
You see the trap? In other words, okay, Jesus, how are you going to bring these two things together? The, you know, the justice and mercy of God without compromising his justice on the one hand and mercy on the other. Because we know the nature of God is, as we know from Scripture, is that he is fully just. He's fully merciful among all the other attributes. Jesus claims to be God, and now they want to, they want to trap him. But awful. They use a woman caught in the very act of adultery to attain their goal. Let's get into the narrative. Notice the setting. The setting of their plot. It's in the temple. In the house of God. Right? It happens sometimes even among Christians. In the church. You see it here. We read in verse 2 that very early morning Jesus came again into the temple. The night before he had Again, retired on the Mount of Olives, or yeah, on the Mount of Olives. And he had just been at one of the Jewish feasts in, in, in Jerusalem. The name of that big feast was like a, I mean, we have big feast festivals today too, Christmas, Easter. This was one of their big feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles. And thousands and thousands of people would come from all over Israel, maybe even beyond and come to Jerusalem. So it was a huge fanfare. People coming into Jerusalem to celebrate. Again, it's a seven-day feast. That's a, long, that's a long feast. Time of joy. And during those seven days, what would people do? They would build these booths or tents, little homes outside, make them out of branches, and that's where they would live in. Okay, hence called the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacle stands for the booths. And that was their way of remembering how God cared for them in the wilderness, right, when they were traveling through it, right? And so that was a way of remembering God's care for them when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. But in this feast, there are two prominent symbols in the Feast of Tabernacles. Two big symbols. Light and water. We know that from chapter 7. The temple area was lighted by large candlesticks. And those large candlesticks reminded God's people, oh yeah, way back in the wilderness days, how did God take care of us? How did God guide us? Right? He used a fiery pillar at night to guide them and the cloud by day. So it referred to the Lord's leading and guiding them. Today, of course, it's by His Spirit. We don't need the fiery cloud at night to lead us anymore. We have his Holy Spirit. But then that was a, a reminder. Yes, that's how God took care of us. The other thing as well is that each one of those seven days, a priest would carry water from the pool there, from the pool of Siloam, and then would pour it out on the altar with a golden vessel. And that reminded the Jews of what? How God provided water for them in the wilderness. Remember from the rock? So those were ways of remembering what God had done for them. We do the same thing with Christmas, Easter, ways of remembering what God has done for us and celebrating that. Here at the feast, though, Jesus is teaching them, and he declares himself to be the reality, the real thing. He's the real thing behind the light and the water 
He is the light. See verse 12? I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Beautiful. And then, he's also the water. If you go back a few verses to John 7, verse 37, on the very last day of the feast, it says that Jesus cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And you're going to see that beautiful illustration of that in John chapter 8. But anyway, he is the water. He is the light. Now the last day of the feast is over. And yet, Jesus, he's the one who the feast is all about. He continues his teaching even after those seven days are over. Why is that? (laughs) All kinds of people just stayed milling about. They didn't want to go home. Multitudes and lots and lots of people. And who didn't like that? Well, the leaders in the church of that day. Right? The chief priests and the Pharisees. They were religious teachers. They were not happy about that. And even though the feast was over, the sense here is that they just kept on piling in. They just kept on coming more and more and more as Jesus, the new Moses, right, sits and he teaches with authority. If we look a little earlier in chapter 7, it says that many were believing in him. And these religious teachers tried so hard to keep them from coming to faith in him. And they used all kinds of obstacles. I just think of what's going on, for example, in Punjab today. This Christianity is growing. They, they say, nah, it's not true. You really believe that? That bodies will rise from the grave when Christ returns? All kinds of ways to undermine the teaching and the authority of Christ's word. Okay, that's what's going on here. They want to, uh, they want to uh, trap Jesus in his teaching. They want Jesus to look dumb. They want Jesus to look ignorant. <laughs> this is all he is. So that people can think badly of him and not follow him. The world has lots of people like this. Right? It's a city of religions. People don't like to lose people to Jesus and his teaching. We know that Satan uses these people to keep the veil of unbelief over their own followers. But it doesn't stop there either. They also want to plant doubt and they want to pressure, and see that in our culture today, you know, the pressure on the church to to conform to the mold of the world because the teaching of Christ threatens the very fabric of society. It's very unsettling. It causes causes, uh, um, uh, pockets of... um, or things start bubbling up, there's, there's resistance. And so there's an extreme pressure from society and the church to look more and more like the world, to follow the standards of the world. Christ and his teachings, you could say, threaten the, the establishment of the elites of our culture. And that's what's going on here. Jesus has come right into the world. He's the way, the truth, and the light. He's the light. He's the water. It's a, it's a very positive thing. It's a joyous thing. It's a way of connecting people with God again. How he establishes a relationship with his people. 
And so in that context, you see uh, his opponents conspiring a plot. This was planned. This was not just on the run, but this was planned. Satan, in this case, uses the cover of religion to do his underground work. Right? Very nice faces. But behind those nice faces were very evil hearts. The scribes were the experts in Moses' law. So yeah, they knew God's law. They were experts in it. The teachers, they were the Pharisees. And keep in mind that their plan from the previous day had failed. If you read in chapter 7, what did the chief priests and Pharisees do? They sent out officers to arrest Jesus. But as they go out to arrest Jesus, all of a sudden they find themselves, oh, let's take a seat. They were also enthralled by the teaching of Jesus. And they were starting to be swayed and wooed in by the teaching of Christ. And it's out of those concerns that they now try to hatch a plan to, you could say, overthrow Christ and his teaching to trap him. It's in that in light of that, that we read in verses 3 to 5. Look at verses 3 through 5. And so the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. You know what adultery is, right? It's having a relationship with someone that is not your spouse. Someone that's married. That's not your spouse. We know from Scripture, even though adultery is accepted in our society today, it's unacceptable to God. Adultery is unacceptable to God. Okay, it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an application of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Okay, so this is the case here. A woman was caught in, the, in, in, in adultery. And when they had set her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Now, it isn't the law. <laughs> it's in the Old Testament. That such should be stoned. But what do you say? This is their trick question. They have their two or three witnesses in accordance with Deuteronomy 19.15. Right? She was caught in the very act. It's not just rumor. It was going on. They saw it. And so they have their two or three witnesses. She's caught red-handed. Likely during the feast. In the time of the booths in the very act of adultery with a married man. So they have their witnesses. And they have the scripture behind them. The law of Moses on their side. If you read Leviticus 20, verse 10, if you look at Deuteronomy 22, 23, 24, Moses commanded that adulterers should be put to death. Wow. Justice or mercy? So, it's... Then that they ask him, what do you yourself say? If Jesus says, don't stone her, then they will charge him with contradicting or going against the law of God. On the other hand, if he says, yes, stone her, then what would become of his word, which he had just spoken a few chapters earlier in John chapter 3, verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. World, of course, here means people and classes from every nation. He came to save. So the center of Jesus' test concerns justice or mercy. 
if God commands death for adulterers, how can now Jesus say no to that and violate his justice and holiness by showing mercy? They frame the question either or. So yeah, behind that very nice face, and the public, people don't know. They think it's a very, probably a very innocent question. It's like they want to learn. But behind that very nice face and behind those very religious words is really a wicked and malicious heart. See verse 6? Jesus knows. This they said, testing him. That they might find something of which to accuse him. So it's not first of all about the woman, but it's about Jesus, this passage. They want to find fault with him. Question is, when you think about this, are they really heartbroken over this woman's sinful conduct? These religious priests and leaders? Are they really heartbroken? No? Are they really concerned about justice? (laughs) No, they hate Jesus. They want to see him undermined. No, they're not concerned about justice. Are they not exploiting this woman for their own purposes? Yes. And they publicly humiliate her. How? Just in the center, it says, before all the people. You can imagine throngs and multitudes of people. And then imagine yourself being humiliated before how many people? A multitude of people being placed in the very center. And of course, their point was they want all the people to realize, to make them think how ignorant Jesus is. Does her shame, does her fears mean anything to them? Is there any pity? Is there any mercy? There's no justice in them. There's no mercy in them. And ever think about this question? Where's the man? Uh, They were caught in the very act. So why the woman? Why not the man? Where's he? This was not a concern about justice. Not at all. It was their means to try to overthrow Jesus. To trap him. To undermine him. And then you realize... You know, sometimes behind the veneer, the heart, yeah, the hearts of men, women, children, are naturally so filled with hatred and murder and deceit. Does the law not, first of all, judge their hearts? Jesus knows their hearts. He knows everything. But Jesus answered the test in a way that they do not expect. And that brings us to our next point. Right? They conspire a plan, and he uncovers it. He will uncover everything. He will make our hearts bare before him. And that's what he does here. Right? The Son of God, God himself, exposing, bringing to the forefront what's really in their hearts. He uncovers or brings out into the open their hearts, the darkness in their hearts. The light of the world. <laughs> right? He is so bright. He's so light. So full of glory. Infinite in his majesty. And in his presence. 
darkness comes forth. It, it, it opens up. It's exposed. The light of the world exposes the darkness. In response to their question, what do you, what do you say? But what do you say? What does Jesus do? <laughs> he doesn't answer them with words. What does, he simply, what does he do? He simply stoops down to the ground, uses his finger, and starts writing on the ground. Why does Jesus write on the ground with his finger? What's Jesus communicating? What's he saying? Who else wrote with his finger? God did. Remember Exodus 31 18? God used his finger to write the law of God. Exodus 31 18. They knew the scriptures. They were the experts, the scribes. That's who he's teaching. And now Jesus, with his very own finger, starts writing on the ground. The Ten Commandments were written with the finger of God. And since the scribes were the experts of the law, by this time Jesus is saying, it's my finger that wrote the law. It's my finger that wrote the Ten Commandments. He's the Lord. You may appeal to the law of Moses, but Jesus is saying, I'm the author. I'm the author of the law which Moses gave to you. I'm on Sinai. And so Jesus declares in verse 7, okay, I'm the author, and so I give you permission. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So the question is, who will be the first one? Who's going to be the first one to throw a stone at this woman? It should be one without sin. And you begin to realize, and they begin to realize, the law reaches so deep. It's not just outward actions. The law of God doesn't just address our outward actions. It addresses our words, our thoughts, and the deepest recesses of our heart. We can hide from one another, but the Lord Jesus here sees into the very hearts of these men, of these people. The law of God judges not only the outward sinful acts, but also the thoughts and the motives of the heart. It goes so deep. It goes to, to, to the depth of the core of our being. Think of what the Bible says in Hebrews 4.13. Our hearts are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And then you realize, don't we all think Jesus? Who among them throws a stone at the woman? Does anyone? Does anyone? We read in verse 9, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. One by one, they leave the room. They will go so quickly that Jesus did not even yet raise himself from the ground, from writing with his finger on the ground. And he, went, he stood up and God. You see how men, you see how people, when they live in the darkness, they flee from the darkness. I always think of that. You know, sometimes you pick up a rock in the garden, you lift it up, and there's certain bugs that scatter. They want to go into the darkness because the light exposes them. Okay? That's exactly what's going on here. They flee 
from the presence of the Almighty. They flee from the presence of the Son of God. They flee from the presence of the Him who is the light of the world, the light of God Himself, which brings out the darkness into the open. And the question is, who's left in the room? And Jesus was left alone. Oh, and one other person was left in the room. The woman. That bad, bad woman. She too was left in the room. Would you or I have been able to remain in that room? Think about it. Unless we're like that woman. Then yes. Unless we stand before Jesus as a sinner like this woman coming to the light of the world knowing the wrong knowing the sin that we carry knowing how sinful we are and also knowing our need for forgiveness then yeah we join her too and out of that of course Christ builds his church that's the only way we can be in the presence of the light of Christ He's the one that draws us, reveals who we are, manifests the darkness so that we can come to him for covering. It takes great humility. And it's amazing here how God magnifies his grace. (laughs) He goes to the worst person there. And it's just Jesus and her, just Jesus and her left in that room. Well, we see how Christ, he certainly answers their plot. As a matter of fact, he overthrows the plotters. And boy, that's our confidence at the church today, right? God will overthrow all those who try to malign Christ and the teachings of his word. And you see that here so powerfully and yet so gracefully. As if Christ is saying, yeah, but to all who come to me, there's life. And that's what we see here in verses 10 and 11. And 12, how does Jesus respond to the woman caught in the very act of adultery? When Jesus had raised himself up, it says, and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And he hears some of the most tender words that you or I could ever hear. You know, often we carry a load of guilt. We know our sinfulness and You know, perhaps we know our sinfulness in a way that nobody else in the room here knows about ourselves. And God even knows us better than we know ourselves. And here's this woman, right? Naked in her adultery, right? And what does Jesus say to her? Most tender words. Neither do I condemn you. Wow. The world would go out to condemn But here Christ says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Imagine the joy. Imagine the joy if you were this woman hearing Jesus say this to you. But this is you. This is you. This is the church. If you come in true confession, in true openness, in true humility... All the only thing we can offer to Jesus is our sinfulness. Nothing else. That's the gift we can offer him. That's the only thing we can offer him is our sinfulness. Like this woman. 
we come to him with all our sins, to the one who is the light of the world. Now, of course, the question is, where is the justice then? You see such mercy in those words. Neither do I condemn you. Where is his justice? Well, what she did wrong, the adultery that she committed, no doubt is wrong. But that's why Jesus was going to the cross. That's precisely why he's going to the cross. Jesus was also going to take the punishment of her sin. He says, let me bear the punishment in full for what you have done, for the wrong that you have done. And it's in this we also see his divine mercy, isn't it? At the cross. It's only at the cross. Nowhere else, in no other religion. And this is the the beauty of the Christian faith is that only at the cross do you see justice and mercy come together. At the cross, the cross of Christ, both his justice, not justice or mercy, but justice and mercy. God demonstrated his justice on his only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who bore the just wrath of God, the full punishment of God for sinners, for sinners like us. Like this woman. In the very same act, the one who bears the punishment, the one who carries the judgment on our sin, in that very same act, God also demonstrates his mercy and he passes over our sin and adopts us as his children. You know who God justifies? He justifies the ungodly, says Romans 6, Romans 4. He justifies the ungodly through faith in him. That's the basis for no condemnation. That's the basis for God's declaration. You are not condemned. The basis is Christ's own sacrifice. And his sacrifice alone at the cross, there is no other basis in the world, in no other religion, not in Islam, not in Hinduism, not in Sikhism. The only basis, the only foundation for God declaring, you are not condemned. The opposite, of course, is you are justified. You are accepted. The basis is Christ and his finished sacrifice, his atoning sacrifice on the cross for sinners. I love the way that one person put it. His name is Sinclair Ferguson. He talks about Jesus in this way. The lawmaker, he's the one who made the law, he became the law keeper. So he became man, he was incarnate, the son of God, and he came to keep the law in our place. The lawmaker became the law keeper, and then he took our place, he took our condemnation, as though he were, as though he were the lawbreaker. So lawmaker, lawkeeper, he takes our place, he takes our condemnation as though he were the lawbreaker. What humility became obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. Not for himself, but in his love for his people. 
The only one who can save you by his perfect sacrifice on the cross, not condemned. What does that mean? Those are the most precious words that one person, that a person can ever hear in this world. Not condemned. Well, we already said that the opposite of that is being justified, fully accepted by God through faith on the finished sacrifice of Christ. That's, that's, that's the promise. That's the declaration. That's a pronouncement. But it means so much more. It means you're free from the guilt of sin. We sometimes feel guilty, and we do, rightly so. But it's Christ who frees us from the guilt of sin. And it's Christ who frees us from the power or from the dominion or reign of sin. Accepted by God. Adopted. No, we don't deserve it. But it's Christ, isn't it? It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ, even in this passage. Adopted as sons and daughters of God. And that's why he said to the woman, that's why Jesus can say to the woman, (laughs) neither do I condemn you. Go. Sin no more. You know, what he's saying there is, it's not that she's not going to sin anymore, but what what he's saying is, you don't go back to that old life. Right? Because what I've done for you, he came with that declaration, he came with that promise, Right? And therefore, you don't go back to that old ways. Right? Like Second Peter says, a dog returning to the vomit. So many Christians call themselves Christians today, and they think if they just believe, but they can continue living as they please. That's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus came to save us. He didn't just say, just believe. Yes, believe. But that also... He also saves us from that old way of life, the old way of He came to save us from our sins, from the guilt of sin, from the power of sin. And that's what he says to the woman now too. Go and sin no more. You're forgiven. Now go ahead. But don't do your own thing. You're forgiven. Now live the life of victory in Christ. To go back to the old ways of sin, you know, you think of hatred and jealousy, that's slavery. There is so much slavery. But the beautiful thing is Christ, the light, exposes that. And he can not only expose the darkness of it, but he delivers us from it. He frees us from it. When we believe on him. For Christ, he's the one who is victorious over sin, death, and hell. God does not mean to leave us in the way he found us. Right? When God, when God comes to us in Christ, we come to him the way we are in all our sins and filthiness. But he also transforms us by his spirit. Right? He also begins to transform us by his spirit in the likeness of his son. But neither let your sins stop you from coming to Jesus. So many, I've met people who said, I can never be forgiven. You don't know what I've done. I remember one person saying to me, I've broken every commandment of the law. And I said to him, I said, I don't need to hear what you've broken. I don't need to hear, I don't, you don't need to confess to me. But you need to confess to Christ. You need to confess to him. Don't let your sins stop you from coming to Christ. 
Jesus himself says in John 3, 18, he who believes in me is not condemned. Fact. Truth. Do we believe it? Sometimes we may doubt. Maybe we wonder, but who said it? Does God ever lie? Is he dependable? Is his word trustworthy? Always. 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 But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So yeah, don't let your sins stop you from coming to him because if you don't come to him with your sins, you're already condemned. Look what Christ did for this woman. He gave a declaration. And not only gave the declaration, he gave the power to her to obey. Yeah, you can't stop a life of sin unless you come to Christ first. That's the only way where healing, where forgiveness, where change can take place. Coming to Christ first, then change. So often you hear people say, you got to change, you got to change, you got to change. Doesn't work that way. That's what other religions do. No, you got to come to Christ, you got to come to Christ, you got to come to Christ. Then the change. It's exactly with the woman. You're not condemned. Right? She believed. Do you know what's so beautiful here? Christ not only overthrows the plot of his opponents, but he brings this woman to himself using <laughs> their evil plot against him to bring her into the light. Sometimes we even we hear many stories like that. God using evil, even in our lives, right, to bring people to himself. He did this with this woman. Today the world plots against the word of God, but God will have his way with his word. No one can stop his sovereign hand. He will do his work. The risen Christ overcame those who plotted to try to keep him in the grave. Could they keep him in the grave? Oh, they took that big stone and they glued it to the... Nobody could move that stone. And Christ, the Son of God, burst forth. He's the light of life. He's the one. He's the one. The only one. Yes. But there's more here. The light exposes the darkness. Notice, light does one of two things. Those wanting to stay in the darkness of their sins want to flee from Jesus. That's what we see here. John 3.20 says, Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. That's why the world hates the, the word of God. That's why the world hates the church. Because every time they see the light again, they see the light in the families. They see the light of discipline. They see the light of Christian schools. They see the light of marriage. They balk at it. They hate it. Because the light exposes the darkness. Others, however, like this woman, in God, in his wondrous way, in his sovereign plan, weaves people into the church. By his sovereign grace, they come to the light to receive forgiveness. A covering. That's what we need. A covering that Jesus gives. We need to be covered. Covered with his righteousness. And then we can walk in the light. 
beautiful. He's the light of life. The most beautiful thing about the life of the Queen of England was her confession of her need for Christ. This was the most beautiful thing. Nothing compares to her confession of her need for Jesus. In spite of all the royal regalia and other stuff around that, this was the most important thing, the most beautiful thing. She put it this way just recently. For me, the life of Jesus Christ is the anchor in my life. It's God's grace. You see, at the cross, and only at the cross, God demonstrates his justice and mercy in Christ. That's where the light of the gospel is. You're not going to find it anywhere else. Only at the cross. Not justice or mercy. <laughs> Let's not answer that wrongly. But justice and mercy. Right? The nature of God. You see, the beautiful nature of God, his justice and mercy revealed, manifested at the cross. His full justice, payment for sin. His full mercy, salvation from sin. Come together at the cross. This is our greatest apologetic to peoples of other religions. This very point. This very point. The greatest defense. You will not find it anywhere else and no other religion. Outside of Christ, there is no mercy. How do we know? Because the Bible says so. There is no mercy outside of Christ. There is no covering for sin outside of Christ. There's only condemnation. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am. The one who revealed himself to Moses as the great I am. I am. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. All glory be to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.